that's a great passage. It's probably um, in, the, in the group of some of my favorite passages, some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Um, there's a lot there. <clears throat> you know, if I was asked after four years of Bible school, you know, I, I spent a lot of money, I spent a lot of hours to be trained to know and understand the Bible better for a number of years. If I was asked what my single best takeaway, single most important takeaway from those four years was, there'd be some answers I'd be tempted to say, you know, a better understanding of the Bible as one book with one major story, um, or a better understanding of, you know, specific books within their context, understanding how they work, or just general um, ways of reading the Bible, helping to understand how to study well. And those are all good things, but I think when I really think about those four years and what has ultimately had the greatest lasting impact on me, in addition to all of those things, I think the biggest one is that we had it pretty much pounded into our heads that the greatest privilege of a believer is to be able to preach the gospel to themselves every day. And that might sound a little weird to you, because I think we're used to thinking about the gospel as a message for unbelievers, right? It's the message by which somebody gets saved. But I think when we understand how the Bible thinks about the gospel, it's not just a message that saves, but it's also a message that sanctifies. It's the message that makes us right with God, but then also the message that helps us grow in him. It's necessary in the life of a believer. And so this morning, as we spend time walking through Ephesians 2, I just want us to glory in the beauty of the gospel together. I think Ephesians 2 probably is the best summary of this message in all of Scripture. It's 10 packed verses. So as we walk through them today, I kind of have two goals. One goal, if you would freely admit today that you are not a Christian, or if you're a Christian who is, you know, struggling, not really seeing the realities the Bible describes as being real for you, not not really grasping what is taught in the gospel. My prayer is that today would be the day that the Lord would use these verses to draw you to himself, that you would respond to the message of the gospel as we see it here in Ephesians chapter 2. The other goal, though, is for the other believers in this room. I'm hoping that by the end of the message today, you will share my conviction that one of the greatest gifts that we have as Christians is the gift of being able to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. So one thing we have to realize is that Ephesians 2 helps us to understand the spiritual reality when somebody becomes a Christian. But that kind of, that is a, a, a consequence of them believing the message of the gospel. And so something I've been trying to get better at doing and something you will hear consistently in my preaching is that whenever I'm going to use the word gospel, I want to define it. I want us to have common ground. So you know what I mean every time that I say that word, because it's going to come up a lot in this message. So what is the message of the gospel? What is the message that people have to believe in order to be saved? I think it begins with the fact that God created everything for his glory, the the universe, the earth, plants, animals, and human beings as the crown jewel of his creation. And so because we are created by a creator, we should behave as he wants us to, right? In the same way that if you or I I don't know, made a pot out of clay, we would determine what it would be used for. In the same way, God decides what we are supposed to do, and the call on humanity is to live for his glory. But 
we don't. <laughs> we, we sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And to go even further, we try to steal his glory for ourselves. I think all of us, if we're honest, realize that apart from a relationship with Jesus, we live to make much of us. I would naturally live to make much of Daniel, which essentially is an act of divine treason. We have betrayed the king of the universe. And when you betray a king, there is punishment. Because God is just, he must punish sin, and we as sinners deserve punishment. Yet in his great mercy, God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who came to the world in flesh in order to pay the penalty for our sin. He died on the cross to die the death that we should have, to absorb the wrath of God that we should have felt. And as a result of his death and his resurrection, offers the free gift of eternal life to all who put their faith in him as Lord and Savior. So every time I say the word gospel today, that's the message that I have in mind. That is the the key message that we are seeing through these verses. As we start this morning, we're going to start with the dark part of these verses. I'm going to read the first three verses here of Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You know, what Paul realizes is that in order to get to the good news, we need to understand the bad news. Right? If we as a church tell people they have to be saved without telling them what they have to be saved from, that's illogical. We need to understand where we are coming from to understand where God wants us to go. So one thing to notice is that these first three verses are in the past tense. So this book was a letter written by a man named Paul to a church. So his expectation is that the hearers of that letter were already Christians. So he could speak of this in the past tense. This was their reality, but it isn't any longer. So if you are here today as a Christian, that is true of you as well. These verses are in the past tense for you. This is not who you are. This is not what defines you anymore. However, if you are here, again, in that first group I mentioned earlier, who are not Christians, the Bible teaches that this is your reality now. It's dark. It's hopeless. And my prayer is that today that would change for you. That as this message is explained, and by God's grace you understand it, that this would become your previous reality and not your current. So the first thing we need to notice in these verses is that Carrie Underwood is a terrible theologian. Yeah, that didn't work very well in first service. It was a bit of an older crowd, so I'm glad some of you caught that. For those of you who didn't, I'll I'll get around to explaining it. But I say this to point out that we are far more shaped by what we listen to, by what we observe, by our culture, than I think we realize. Back in 2005, Carrie Underwood released a song called Jesus Take the Wheel, which kind of gives us this mental image of, you know, ourselves sitting in the driver's seat of our lives, everything's under control, and in the moment when we feel like we don't really have control anymore, Jesus is just sitting in the passenger seat waiting to grab the wheel for us. 
Paul really doesn't agree with Carrie Underwood's theology here. The way that Paul describes it is not you're in your driver's seat in control. He says, you were dead. Hard stop. Not dying, not sick, dead. Unable to do anything for yourself. Six feet under the ground, completely helpless. It's a little different than Carrie's thoughts, but it's a realistic picture of who we are apart from Christ. It's important, though, to understand what Paul means when he says dead, because I think it's rather obvious he's not talking about being physically dead, right? We're, we're all here today. We all can talk and, and walk and eat and drink, whatever. We're not physically dead. He's talking about spiritual death. I think the best way to understand what that means, because that's a pretty vague concept, is in the same way that someone who is physically dead can't experience physical things, right? Dead people can't taste, touch, smell, uh, hear, see, all that. People who are spiritually dead can't respond to spiritual realities. There, there is no way that they can comprehend them, that they can see them, that they can live in response to them. At least, not without a miracle. And that's where Paul is ultimately going here. So the way that Paul explains spiritual death is it means that we are in trespasses and sins, which he's using two different words there because they actually mean two slightly different things. The word trespasses, when Paul uses it, is talking about when there is a set standard, right? An actual written commandment. And we look at it and we go, no, I'm not going to do that. It's an intentional transgression of a stated law. Whereas sins is obviously the plural of the word sin. And when Paul uses the word sin, he's not talking about things that necessarily violate a specific commandment, but rather this inner corruption that we have, this natural bent towards wanting to do things our own way. So trespasses is violating a written commandment, and sins are just the ordinary acts of of selfishness and evil that we commit, even if they're not necessarily against a stated law, it's just because we are selfish people who are going to do what we want to do. So then from there, Paul kind of identifies three different tempters or influences that draw people into sin. The first of which, he says that these were people who were following the course of this world. So the world, the people around us, our culture wants to draw us away from obedience to God. In essence, it's like saying, well, you look like everyone around you. You just kind of live like people who don't know Christ. You believe the lies of your culture. You don't approach issues with biblical wisdom. And I think that this has to beg the question, if a Christian is not distinguishable in some way from their neighbors, is this maybe something that they have fallen back into? I mean, Paul describes it as a past reality, but that doesn't mean we still can't struggle to be drawn back into it. Because I think we are shaped by our culture, and we're drawn to the values that they value. You know, I think of this idea of greed, right? That's a, it's a big word. It, it feels like something we wouldn't do, but just the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of amassing stuff, you know, wanting a bigger house, a nicer car. Those are things that the world values, but Christians really shouldn't. We're supposed to not build up treasures on earth. Or an abandonment of biblical sexual ethics, right? The Bible is clear. Sexual union is for a man and a woman in marriage, period. To abandon that is to fall to the lies of the culture. 
Finally, and this is kind of the most um, innocuous one, we might not even think about it, but the way that we spend our time, right? We, we spend our time doing the things that we value. It's the best way to figure out what's important to people, is what do they spend their time doing? And so if the way that we as Christians spend our time looks identical to the way that unbelievers spend our time, spend their time, it shows that we have some value issues. We don't live in accordance with what we say that we value. But that's the first of Paul's three tempters, three influences to sin. The second he identifies here is the devil, and he gives him the title here, the prince of the power of the air. It's, it's a fancy title, but he's talking about Satan. It's important to remember here, Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere all the time. That's something that's only true of God. So it's not like every time we're tempted to sin, it's Satan whispering in our ear trying to draw us to do something. But we also have to realize that there is a spiritual reality. There are forces at work that want us to disobey God. Demonic influences that want to draw us away from living for our Savior. And Paul has strong language for the people who fall to these temptations. He calls them children of disobedience. I mean, it's almost like this image, like, like mommy disobedience and daddy disobedience loved each other very much and just created this horrible mess of a disobedient child who did not want the things of God. <clears throat> Finally, the third one that Paul identifies, the third influence towards sin, is our flesh, by which he doesn't mean our skin. When, when Paul talks about the flesh in the Bible, he's talking about, again, this inner corruption, this natural predisposition to do what is wrong. And I think what he's doing here is after identifying two outside forces, the world and the devil, he then wants to make sure there is no saying, well, the devil made me do it, or, well, my neighbors were doing it, so I just had to go along with it. So he points to the outside factors, but then he says, but also, you are drawn to sin in yourself. It's, it's what you want to do. And I think that the reality the Bible presents us with is that ultimately, we as human beings will do the thing that we most want to do. And apart from Christ, that is always to pursue our own glory. It's always to live for ourselves and to build ourselves up. So this is the reality of humanity. Dead in trespasses and sins, drawn into them by multiple factors. But Paul's not done. He goes for what I think is probably the darkest point in this whole section, where he says that we were by nature children of wrath. When he says by nature, I think we need to take note of that. Because there exists in our world this idea called humanism, that people are basically good, right? That, that left to our own devices, humanity will, will more often than not do the right thing, and if we were given the chance, we could build this like perfect utopia. The Bible disagrees, and I would argue that human history has also proven that that's not the case. Ultimately, it seems that whenever humans get power, it corrupts them. They use it, again, to further themselves. And so, by nature, Paul says, we aren't that way. We, we are, we're broken. We naturally want to sin. We want to disobey God. And the title he gives for those people are children of wrath. You know, this is one of those things that nobody likes to talk about. It kind of, you know, sucks the air out of the room and it gets a little somber because we don't like to talk about the wrath of God, but it is a reality. And the reality is that, that apart from faith in Christ, 
humans are destined to face the wrath of God because he is a holy judge, because he is good, and we don't want a good judge to leave bad deeds unpunished, unless, of course, they're our own. The reality is that God is a judge, and his judgment will come for those who do not put their faith in Christ. But the crazy reality is that that's not true for everyone, that he does, in fact, show mercy. And that's exactly where Paul is going here, because these first three verses, they're heavy, right? This is a very bleak situation. There's not a lot of hope here, but it is reality, at least until these two words at the start of verse 4 that change everything. But God, this immediate injection of hope that into our hopeless situation steps the only one who can possibly remedy it, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So coming from this impossible indictment, right? No hope but God. Paul presents the gospel in its simplest possible form, simplest details, God stepping in to our hopelessness. And these are a dense few verses. There's a lot of statements, but all of them deserve a little bit of attention because they are all very rich. The first of these statements is that God is rich in mercy. Now, we throw that word around a lot, so let's get a good, simple working definition. Mercy is being spared from what we deserve. So it makes sense that Paul would use it here because he just mentioned that we are by nature children of wrath, deserving of God's wrath. But God is rich in mercy, right? He is quick to abate, to to not give us what we deserve. The second statement is that God is great in love towards his people. Now, if you've talked to me privately about theology or scripture, Um, or I'm sure it comes out in my preaching as well. My bent um, is to talk about the greatness of God, the glory of God, the holiness of God, in part because I think our North American church culture needs a little bit of a corrective. We love the love of God as we should, but we've overweighted it. We've, We've kind of made God a big cuddly teddy bear instead of the holy, massive God that he is. So my bent is to try to correct that But even in that, we cannot ignore the reality that God has an incredible love for his people. He is our heavenly father. He loves us like a father, but it's even more than that because God's love is tied to a covenant. The God who never breaks promises, the God who never lies, has given us a covenant. In in just a few minutes here, we're going to take communion together where we remember the covenant that God made with his people where he sealed all of his promises to love us, to provide for us, to secure us, and ultimately to work all things together for our good. It is a love so great that Paul continues that even while we were dead, which, what does that mean? Again, nothing to offer, right? This wasn't an investment that God was making. There's no return on it. He's taking dead people with nothing to offer, and he 
makes them alive together with Christ. God's love for his people is not just a love that saves, but it's a love that draws them into union with him. It's an intimate relationship. We, we hear this language in the Bible about oneness, being, being made one with Christ. We are identified with him, and he is identified with us. That's why we get baptized, one of the reasons anyways, right? In baptism, we go below the water, we are identified with Christ's death, and we come back above the water, we are identified with his resurrection. But even in the incredible picture of being a made live, made, oh boy, that was quite a flicker, being made alive together with Christ, we shouldn't miss the miracle that he has made dead things alive. Spiritually dead people who cannot see or respond to spiritual realities. I think that the Bible gives us an incredible illustration of this spiritual reality with a physical one. Think of the story of Lazarus, right? Dead man, dead for three days, laying in a tomb, body decaying, it's a bad time. He can't ask Jesus to raise him from the dead. He can't ask for help of any kind, and Jesus walks up and says, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man gets up and walks out. That's how this functions. It is an act of God. It is a miracle that we can't contribute to in any way. Then Paul cuts into his momentum here, right? You can kind of feel this building. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He's growing and growing, but then he cuts in. He cuts off his own momentum to make a very important statement. By grace, you have been saved. Now, I wanted to point out this cut in here, but we're actually going to talk about this more in just a few verses because he expands on it. After cutting into his momentum, he then continues this build. He says that he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this is a little weird because we would expect him to say that he will raise us like Christ, that he will seat us in the heavenly places with Christ. But he uses present tense language. So let's go back again for a second, right? We were made alive together with Christ. It's this doctrine that we call union with Christ. We are, we are made one with him. We are brought together with him in such a way that what Christ experiences, we in some way experience as well. So because Jesus already rose from the dead, and is already seated in heaven, there's some sense in which we are too. And I realize that's kind of vague, right? It's kind of abstract because it's not something that we can feel and experience right now. But I think what it does is it gives us incredible security because we're already there somehow in some crazy spiritual way because we are in Christ, we are already in heaven We look forward to the time when we will experience that more fully, but who can touch us if we are already sitting there with our Savior? And it's this forward time that Paul then continues to, right? He says that, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The Christian life now is one of peace and joy in God. And if that isn't the case for you, I'd I'd love to talk about that because it is, I think, important that we understand that that is something we can experience now because of what Jesus has done. But we look forward to a time when we will experience God's goodness 
in a fuller way, in a greater way for all of eternity. But once again, Paul's using this phrase over and over. It is that um, we will exp- he will show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's because we are united with him. It's because we are partakers in Christ that any of this is possible. But let's go back again to this idea of by grace. In verses 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Something to keep in mind is that Paul is often dealing with a divide between Jewish and Gentile Christians in these letters. So there were some Jews who believed that in order for Gentiles, non-Jews, likely all of us, to become Christians, they would have to follow the Judaic law. The men would have to be circumcised. There would be dietary rules. There would be rules about what you would have to wear. You would have to keep the Sabbath. They had added on all these extra commandments. And what Paul says to that is, no, not at all. There are no works involved in being justified before God. It is solely by grace through faith. And that's an explosive truth. And, And I think we miss that sometimes because we live in a world that is 500 years removed from the Protestant Reformation But it was Martin Luther's rediscovery of this idea that we are saved by grace through faith, not a result of works that changed essentially the course of human history, but also the course of the church. It's why we exist as Baptists. It's why many denominations you see exist, because one man realized that works had been added to what was needed for salvation, and that wasn't what Scripture had taught. But I think there's something more here, hidden kind of in plain sight, So we see that Paul is trying to eliminate any room for boasting in the life of a Christian, right? So salvation is not a result of works so that no one may boast. But if I can ask a question, what stops somebody from boasting in their faith, right? What stops me from going, well, I believed, so I'm better than that guy down the road who didn't, unless faith itself is a gift from God, Let's let's look at how Paul structures this again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The word this, this is not your own doing, and the word it, it is a gift of God, both refer to that whole unit. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Every element Paul understands as a gift, including faith itself. Ultimately, the point that he's trying to make is that every part of our salvation is a gift from God. He makes us alive. He loves us and shows us grace. And he saves us through the saving faith that he gives us. That's how Paul aims to eliminate all boasting. He settles here that that every inch of the gospel message points us back to the wonderful love and grace of our Heavenly Father. And by doing so, it takes all the credit away from us, makes us grateful to God for what he has done. But then, Paul, as he often does in his writings, foresees someone saying, well, if I'm not justified by my works, then I'm just going to go do whatever I want 
You know, I'm not going to obey God's commandments because it's not by works, it's by faith. And Paul, foreseeing that, writes verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Rusty has used this phrase from the stage before. I'm going to steal it. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Right? They're not optional in the life of a believer. They are a core element of why we have been, as Paul says here, created in Christ Jesus, which it's worth noting, he's not talking about like general, like everybody was created by God, all human beings, but there's something special he has in mind here, because again, this phrase I've been trying to clue us in on, created in Christ Jesus. He's talking about a special type of creation, or the phrase that we're used to hearing for it, he's talking about being born again. When we are born again into Christ, it reorients us so that we can live out these good works. But again, Paul wants to eliminate boasting, right? Because he says that God has prepared these works. We simply step out and do them. It's, I think, the best way to think of it. It's like following someone through a forest, right? God's out in front with his machete, hacking away at all the branches, making sure of every step, every... And we're just kind of, you know, waddling along behind. Well, at the end of the trail, who gets the glory for the work that's done? The one who blazed the trail, not the one who just kind of dawdled along behind them. And so by doing this, Paul enables us to do great things for God, but ultimately to use those great things to say, wow, thank you, God, for the privilege of serving you in that way, rather than thinking that God owes us something for the works that we have done. You know, this, this really is the single greatest message ever told. The message of the gospel, it's it. <laughs> it's more important than anything else that we can understand and believe as human beings. But like I said, my goal today was that those of you who are Christians would leave here sharing my conviction that we should be reminding ourselves of this message daily. And I feel like I haven't really done that to this point. I've just kind of explained it. So as I close, I just want to take a couple of minutes and point out six things just from these 10 verses that I think we are reminded of when we preach the gospel to ourselves. And there are infinitely more, but these are the ones just found in the passage that we walked through this morning. So first of all, when we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, it creates gratitude in us. Right? When we read verses 1 to 3 here, we see who we are apart from Christ. Dead, drawn to sin, by nature, against God, deserving of his wrath. That's who we are without him. So when things aren't necessarily going our way, you know, when it kind of feels like God has forgotten us, when it feels like we're in a trial that's too much, we can be reminded of the incredible grace he has shown to us by taking us from that state, hopeless, and by giving us the hope that is in the gospel. Second thing I think it does, when we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, it reminds us that we are free. Paul points out here, that we are drawn to sin by the world, our flesh, and the devil. But when we are in Christ, we no longer have to bow to those temptations. We are enabled not to sin by the power of Christ. It's freedom. We don't have to continue in self-destructive behavior that is sinful, that is against God. But we only see that when we properly understand the message of the gospel. 
Thirdly, when we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, it assures us that the wrath of God is not coming for us. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the wrath of God for all the sin, for all of the people who put their faith in him. So when we do transgress, right, when we look at the written commandment of God and we go, no, I don't want to do that today, and we trespass his law, we can be sure that he is not going to cast us out. Christ has paid the penalty. It assures us that God's wrath is never going to come for those of us who are in Christ. Fourthly, when we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, it comforts us. We're living in a world that is increasingly hostile to (laughs) this book, right? To to the message in the Bible, to the the things it demands of humanity, to um, even just the way that we choose to live as Christians. So we will face abuse, bullying from coworkers, classmates. That's going to be part of our reality. But if this is true, and I believe with all my heart that it is, then we are already seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What can people do about that? And they could kill me. Okay, so what? I'll go to the better reality, right? It it comforts us. It means that there is nothing ultimately that humanity can do to us that will have an eternal impact. We are secure in our Savior. Fifthly, I think we see here that when we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, it humbles us. We are nothing apart from Christ, and we have no foundation from which to boast. We were dead. He made us alive by grace, through faith, all his gifts. What do we have? Nothing, and that's great. We can be grateful to our God because he is the one who owns everything. So we don't really need much. It's good. The gospel humbles us. And finally, when we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, it compels us to live obedient lives for the sake of others. Like I said, 500 years ago, this doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, was essentially rediscovered. But the unfortunate reality is that I mean, immediately then, and in the 500 years since then, there are people who have taken it too far. And that feels crazy for me to even say, but what I mean is that there are people who would say, well, if I'm justified by grace through faith, I'm going to go do whatever I want. You know, I'm going to live whatever I, I feel like doing because God forgives all my sin, and that's great. But when we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, we are reminded that no one who truly knows and believes this message can comfortably continue in a lifestyle like that. It doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense to be uh, thankful to God for what he has done and respond in disobedience. The gospel compels us to live holy lives as the most basic act of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. So church, the gospel really is everything. It is the message we proclaim prayerfully that sinners would hear it, would turn, would know our Savior, and would be set free. But it's also the message that we need every single day. It is the message that helps us to live faithfully. It's the message that gives us security in our Savior. And it's the message that when we take communion together, we are celebrating. If you didn't grab one of these on your way in, just throw a hand up. I think there's probably someone in the back who will grab. Perfect. I mentioned earlier, and I'll I'll reiterate it now, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples, 
He was instituting a covenant. That's the language he used. He was making a promise that all of God's promises would come true. He was securing his people in that covenant. That's what we celebrate. We celebrate the promises of God that were purchased by the death and resurrection of Jesus. His body broken, his blood poured out for our sin to pay for our failure, to be received by grace through faith in Christ alone. And something that I like to point out every time that I lead communion is that this really is a family meal. It's not just, you know, me alone with, with my, little, my little cup and my little wafer. This is something that was instituted at a meal. It's something we do together to remind each other of the promises of God, to remind each other of the death and resurrection of Christ for us. So as we take it this morning, I'd encourage you to keep that in mind. We do this together. That's why we do it on Sundays. It's why we don't do it privately or in our own homes. It's, it's why we do it together. So you can take your first layer of wrapping off the top. Grab that little wafer. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember Jesus as we eat the bread together. In the same way, Jesus took the cup, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Remember the Lord Jesus and this great covenant that he has sworn to us as we drink the cup. Lord Jesus, you have offered us such a great salvation that in you, all of our failures are paid for. There is a promise of eternal hope, of eternal life. We are so undeserving of your mercy, yet you have given it, and we are so grateful for that. Father, I pray now that as we reflect on what Christ has done in this conclusion of the Lord's Supper, and now as we look forward to another week, in a world that is hostile to your truth. I pray that the gospel would be the message that sustains us, that it would be the message that we proclaim not only to others, but also to ourselves. Pray that you would grow in us a greater desire to understand it in its fullness, and that by it you would shape each one of us to conform us more to the image of Jesus Christ. Amen.